Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Robert Hoyle, the Director of Crime for New South Wales Legal Aid. He's going to talk to us about the role of legal aid lawyers in New South Wales and the contribution they make to sentencing. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Robert, I mentioned then you're the Director of Crime for Legal Aid. What, what does that involve? So, as the Director of Crime, I supervise Legal Aid's criminal law practice in New South Wales. That is um, about about 300 lawyers that are based across New South Wales um, in 26 different Legal Aid offices. Legal Aid is a quasi-government organisation that's created under a piece of legislation and it's designed to provide legal help to people who really need legal advice. We actually provide help across criminal law, family law and different types of civil law. Civil can include things like um, discrimination, um, Centrelink housing disputes, um, as well as a whole raft of, of um, issues that arise from time to time. And the idea at the end of the day is to help people who um, are not well funded and wouldn't be able to get legal help without our assistance. How many of your people are full-time involved with the criminal law? About 300 lawyers. Oh, 300 involved in crime. For, for criminal law. So how, how big's the total organisation? 1,400 people in total. Funded but, by government? Funded by government. We also um, have, work in partnership with the private legal profession. So on top of that, we pay private practitioners, private lawyers, to be able to provide services in places that we can't provide it ourselves. And do your lawyers appear in trials for people who've been accused of committing crimes? Yes, they do. So they appear both... Um, we have We have... Solicitor advocates who appear as the advocates in court, effectively playing the role that a barrister would play. We also have solicitors who both instruct barristers, um, as well as solicitors who appear on their own. And I assume there are some eligibility criteria that people must meet before Legal Aid can offer their services. Absolutely. Legal Aid has a means test, which limits um, who we provide Legal Aid for based on what their means are, so based on how much money they earn or what assets they have. We also have guidelines about the types of cases that we represent people in. So where we would um, almost always represent someone for a murder case, we may not represent everyone for every parking ticket that they have, and that's because it's important that we spend taxpayers' money responsibly and that we don't um, allocate the same resources to every case without making that assessment. We know, of course, that most criminal trials occur in the local court, uh, and trials of matters on indictment, of course, in the District Court and the Supreme Court. I assume, therefore, that most of your time, most of your lawyer's time, is spent in the local court? That's right. There are about 155 local courts in New South Wales. We provide services in all of them um, in some way or form, either through in-house legal aid lawyers, which um, provide for about two-thirds of those, as well as private practitioners, where we pay them to appear for people who need help. We, we have what's called a duty service where we provide short advice on the day and representation in court. We also provide grants of legal aid for people who need ongoing assistance, who might require representation at a summary criminal trial in the local court. So if someone was go to, a, to go to a local court on any day of the week, would there be a legal aid person at that court? 
So not necessarily every day, but on the list day, so when the matters are normally listed in one big list, we will normally have a duty lawyer there for every list day in every court across the state. We also provide representation for people who are refused bail, what we call fresh custodies, every day in every court. So we represent people who are arrested overnight or throughout the course of the day who are brought before a court during the course of the day. And the people who, whose matter is in the list on the list day, how do they know that there's a legal aid person at the court? That's a great question. So we um, have a lot of um, signage. We also um, put out a lot of communications to try to tell people in relation to courts, engaging them from the time of the police station sometimes, engaging them from the time of arrest sometimes, but also providing that service at court where we have a room in the courtroom where people are directed to if they ask so registry staff. the door as we're legal aid. Yeah, and in some courts they can put their name on a list that we have there saying that they want help and we'll call out their name. And what about someone who's arrested by the police and taken down to the police station, say at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night? Uh, can that person access legal aid at those hours? So they don't access it at the time of um, arrest and that's because sometimes police make a decision not to charge someone at the end of the, the day or to release someone on police bail at that point. In other words, they're required to come back to the local court at a later date and we'll represent them at that later date. Um, we won't represent them at the police station. If they're taken to the police station for questioning on suspicion, yes, does legal aid have any capacity to assist at that point of time? Not at that time. Again, the limited resources we have mean that we don't provide the advice at the point of charge. There are some limited circumstances in which we do. Um, people will be put through to law access, for example, which is now part of legal aid, to provide get provided basic custody advice, um, being advised about their rights in effect yeah, upon I assume on the arrest. Telephone. Oh, on the telephone, right. but not, not in person. So they're advised about their rights or their right to silence and their, what they can do at that point where they're first confronting the law. That's right. And that person, assuming they don't get bail that night, uh, will they have access to a legal aid lawyer the next day? That's right. So the, at that point, they're required to be put before a court as soon as practicable. And when they're placed before a court, legal aid will be there to represent whoever's been effectively arrested overnight. And if at that point the, the, the crime is, a, let's say, a serious crime, so bail is denied, uh, the person remains in custody, do they continue to have access to a legal aid lawyer from that point on or how does the system work? So they apply for legal aid at that point and depending on their, their means and things like that, most people in custody will be represented by legal aid. Um, it, what will happen is that we represent everybody on the first bail appearance that first day. Irrespective of means and so on. Irrespective of means. Yep. But in effect, later on, we will um, carry out those tests and make those inquiries to check that we're spending money responsibly. But, yeah, our priority at that point will be to, to, to assist them in advancing their criminal case. Now, someone facing a serious criminal charge is likely to prefer to have the same person dealing with their case all the way through the system. Is legal able, able to achieve that? In some circumstances, yes, and in some circumstances, no. For really serious offences, which now fall under the early appropriate guilty plea reforms, which was a package of legislation 
released in 2018. One of the main planks of that was continuity of legal representation. So we were funded to try to keep the same lawyers in matters from start to finish so that if it is one of those serious categories of matters, we really try very hard to make sure that they do get the same lawyer, not necessarily from that first bail date, but certainly after that first bail date until the matter is concluded. We do what we can to keep the same lawyer in it throughout. And if a barrister is um, is instructed to appear the same barrister throughout. Right, so if it's a serious crime and the person's in custody and they don't have excessive means, as it were, um, then Legal Aid will be there to help. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, now, let's go then to the courtroom. Uh, you say that Legal Aid is there on the list day. What are they able to do for someone who is before the court on that day? So they start off by having a conversation with the defendant about why they're in court. They obtain the court papers to understand what charge is holding them or has brought them before the court. And they start by taking a little bit of a background history of that client in order to get an understanding of what brings them before the court and what the issues or challenges are. If they're in custody, the main priority will be whether or not they want to seek bail or a release from custody, and that means identifying um, what the risks are to the community if they were released and how best the lawyers can assist in ensuring that those risks are mitigated or reduced by way of um, identifying a place that they could live, um, identifying whether or not there are particular concerns that need to be addressed through different conditions that the court can impose. And I assume the prosecution at that stage is represented by a Crown Police Prosecutor. That's right. So a police, effectively a police prosecutor who is a police officer who is tasked with representing the police's interests in court. And do your lawyers have discussions with the police about what should happen in relation to particular people who are before the court? Absolutely. We have ongoing discussions, but ultimately what happens is the decision for the court. So we will have um, a constant um, communication with the prosecution at court that's for the purpose of, of, of trying to obtain the information that we need to best help our client and to understand the background circumstances around what's occurred. Now, it's not well, not uncommon that someone arrested in these circumstances may not have a suitable place to live or suitable means to support themselves. There can be all sorts of issues that arise at the initial stage, some of which can be resolved over time. Do your people remain in contact with someone who was denied bail on the first occasion or does it pass off to someone else to look after that person? It depends. Either can happen, but absolutely we continue to stay in touch. So if we represent the client at first instance and they're eligible for legal aid, we will continue to represent them. And that, that will mean that um, even if they're refused bail in the first instance, we might be looking at what circumstances change that might give rise to a further bail application or potentially going to the Supreme Court and making a, 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 another bail application there. Now, let's assume that the person uh, is denied bail and remains in custody and a trial date is fixed. Let's say it's an indictable matter and a trial date is fixed in the district court. That, of course, will be some months after they've been arrested and taken into custody in the normal course. What does Legal Aid do in relation to preparation for that trial? Yeah, so there's a there's a long process now in the local court because of those reforms to try to encourage negotiation between the parties. That involves 
a brief of evidence being served, the party, the, the prosecution certifying a charge, so deciding again what the charges should be um, based on the evidence that becomes available, and then a mandatory case conference in which the prosecution and defence will meet um, either by way of audiovisual link or in person to talk about whether or not there's any scope for negotiation. So this is your lawyer, legal aid lawyer, meeting with the Crown prosecutor, that's the barrister appearing for the Crown. That's right. And they may do that over the screen or they may meet in person. That's right. With a view to doing what? With a view to either uh, finding an appropriate negotiating position that both parties will agree on about the charges. So, for example, if you're charged with murder and the defendant says, I would plead guilty to manslaughter, which is a backup to murder, um, whether or not the Crown would accept the plea of guilty to manslaughter instead and drop the murder charge. So that would be the kind of negotiation that could happen at a case conference. And is there more than one conference likely or just the one? There's one required by law, but there can be more than one. And even if they don't necessarily agree to resolve the case, there can still be useful discussions that occur. For example, they it might be that the parties decide what is in dispute and limit what's in dispute, which means that the time taken to run the trial and the cost of running the trial is reduced. But that doesn't happen in every case. Now, this conference is occurring while the matter is still in the local court? Yes, it's, it's required to happen in the local court. And once it's completed, the parties actually file a document with the court called a case conference outcome certificate. And what that document does is it records any offers that were made by the prosecution or the defence, whether they were accepted or not. And the reason for that is that there is a discount that you get on your sentence in certain circumstances. So, for example, if the defendant said, I would plead guilty to manslaughter, and the Crown says, we will not accept that, we're still going to proceed with the murder charge, but then after the trial, the jury actually finds the defendant guilty of manslaughter instead of murder, the defendant gets a 25% discount. It's the full benefit of the statutory discount. Exactly. It's the full 25% discount as if they had entered that plea in the local court. So we conclude our conference. Maybe we have one or two or more meetings. Uh, And what then happens to the the, the matter? So assuming that the matter is still running as a trial, so the the prosecution and defence can't agree on a resolution, um, it will then be committed to the district court, which is moved from the local court to the district court, or uh, district court was the example you gave, but if there, if it was a murder, for example, it would be moved to the Supreme Court. And at that point, um, the parties prepare for trial, which, which involves um, briefing counsel if counsel is not already briefed, although normally a barrister, counsel would already be briefed on both sides. Would that counsel have been briefed by legal aid for the, so as to act at, that con- at the early conference? In about half of matters, yes. But otherwise... Uh, after the conference and when the matter is referred to the higher court, that's when you brief counsel if required. That's right. Do your advocates appear in the district court in in, in, uh, contested trials? Yes. And what about the Supreme Court? Our advocates have guidelines that limit the types of matters they can appear in and normally the expectation would be that the types of charges that go to the Supreme Court we would brief a barrister. And I take it then your advocate or the barrister you're briefed uh, appears in the usual way and there will be a contest. Yeah. Uh, And I assume that 
before that contest, the barrister or advocate will have considered the evidentiary issues and what witnesses to be called, and most importantly, whether to call the client. Yeah, absolutely. What are the parameters for that decision? Uh, calling a client at a trial? Mm. I think that's a very, very difficult question that turns on in individual cases. So um, people who aren't very experienced with the system might think that it would make sense that you would always call your client because they are giving evidence as to the other side of, of what occurred. But it's really important to remember that in a criminal trial, the onus falls on the prosecution to prove all of the elements of the offence beyond reasonable doubt. The defendant usually doesn't have the onus to prove anything and so it isn't really necessarily for the defendant to say what they say happened necessarily in every case. In some cases, um, it is not in the defendant's interest to give evidence about what it is that they say happened. In other cases, it would be very important that they say what they say happened. What sort of case would it be important I think, for the client? I think in circumstances, for example, where the client is saying that they have a defence, like um, this is not a not a great example but for because it's not technically a defence, but, for example, someone acting in self-defence might want to give an explanation as to why they responded the way that they did because the court is going to need evidence as to um, why they reacted the way that they did, why what they did was necessary, why what they did in self-defence was a proportional response to the threat that they were faced with. What about sexual assault cases? Is it important to call your client in those cases? I think in the ordinary case, yes, um, but I think it does depend on the evidence. I mean, I think it's really hard to answer that type of question completely in a vacuum. I think in a case where the evidence is one witness, effectively where the complainant has given a version and the defendant has given a version, that there can be real value in both versions being put before a jury. In saying that, there are some cases where the evidence... Um, where there may be reasons not to call your client to give evidence. It may be that, for example, they were interviewed by police at the time they were arrested and have already given a full version of everything that, that occurred and that there is really no nothing to be gained for the defendant by getting in the witness box and saying it again and being subject to cross-examination. Of course, this issue about the right to silence, which is what we're talking about, has proved controversial in some jurisdictions. And I think some changes have been made in the United Kingdom in relation to the way you interface with the police when arrested and what relevance that has to the outcome of the trial. But we haven't moved down the same path in Australia. We introduced a number of years ago an amendment to the Evidence Act Section 89 capital A, which introduces a, a special caution. The form of words that apply in that caution are very similar to what occurs in the UK in the sense that a defendant can be told in certain limited circumstances that it may harm their defence if they do not mention when questioned something which they later rely on in court. But one of the preconditions for that is that a lawyer is physically, who is who's acting for the client is physically present at the time that the warning is, caution is given. Um, that almost never occurs in the Australian context. It occurs very easily or far more easily in the UK context. They don't necessarily have our challenges with geographical distance and their scheme is set up in a way that I think probably more greatly supports being able to have a lawyer um, at three o'clock in the morning at a regional police station in a way that 
we would find very difficult to achieve in Australia at Walgett or Lightning Ridge or Broken Hill any night of the week, 24 hours a day. Well, that issue probably will remain one that's controversial going forward. Absolutely. Um, now, in our hypothetical case, there's a trial and there may be an acquittal, in which case the client is free to go. But there may be a conviction, in which case minds have to turn to sentences. It may also be that the client has decided to plead guilty either before trial or at the trial. How do your people go about helping an accused person who is found guilty after trial? What do you do to prepare for sentence or the sentence hearing of that person? Mm, That's a great question. In some ways, that is far more challenging than representing a defendant who has pleaded guilty and accepted responsibility at an early stage. Because after a trial, they have maintained up to that point that for one reason or another, they are not guilty and they've been found guilty by the court. That means that sometimes that defendant remains saying, despite what the court has found, I still say I'm not guilty. And that means that running a sentence process isn't the type of process you can run when the person pleads guilty because you you won't necessarily be building a case about how remorseful they are or about um, the contrition that they have um, for what they did because it may be that their instructions to you are that they're still not guilty and they intend to appeal against the finding that they're guilty. So they wouldn't want you to lead anything on the sentence that would actually suggest now that they are guilty, albeit that's what the court has found and so they will be sentenced and you have to proceed on that basis. But it does limit what you can do. Um, What our lawyers will do is, um, and, and what they will have done throughout the process, is um, to ensure that they are presenting to the court an explanation of who the client, who the defendant is, of what their background is, of why they might have committed the offence that they committed, and to put the offence in its proper context. The whole time it's about trying to explain why this particular offender may have done what they did in the way that they did it, and that involves both obtaining perhaps some expert medical reports about the defendant in some cases where that's appropriate. There's a psychological... Uh, psychological report, a psychiatric report, a neuropsychological report, um, or particular reports relating sometimes to other medical conditions, such as um, I, I represented a client once who had been charged with murder but had a really, really serious type of cancer that suggested he wouldn't live for more than eight more months and in the context of a murder sentence that's quite a significant um, finding because the standard non-parole period or the ordinary starting point for murder at the mid-range of seriousness is 20 years non-parole period so to say that someone would only live eight months more would be quite a substantial impact on um the kind of sentence the court might impose. So it, there what are also, did the court do in that case? Well, it's actually interesting. Um, in, in that case, they imposed um, a relatively um, lenient sentence. I believe the sentence was, um, off the top of my head, I, 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 won't, I, I can't tell you for sure, I think it was 16 years with a non property of eight years, which is really, really low in that particular so case. So it's a life sentence, I assume, for that person. That was certainly the expectation of the court at the time. 
Do you know whether that happened? I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But that is a, um, that's an example of where sometimes a report, other than just a, a normal psychological report, might be of assistance. Um, there are also um, sometimes reports, or it's more and more the practice, potentially to obtain reports, for example, for an Indigenous person from a particular community about that person's upbringing and their community. So that flows from Canadian line of authority in Gladue and the Queen in the Canadian um, jurisdiction in which there is um, far more emphasis placed in that jurisdiction on um, that person, a person's upbringing. And, of course, we have now a, a line of authority from Fernando through to Bugmy that talks about trying to place social deprivation in, in its proper context in terms of both explain it, it, it does um, really assist to explain to a court why someone might have done what they did in the context of their background. Fernando, of course, is a decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal in New South Wales and Bugme is a decision of the High Court. Indeed, yeah. Um, do you call your client uh, at a sentencing hearing once they've been convicted by a jury? I think that depends on the instructions that you that your client has given you. Well, what advice would you give a client? In circumstances where a client wants to appeal against the conviction and wants to continue to suggest that they are not guilty, um, I would say it would be very, very rare that I would ever suggest that they give evidence in that in that circumstance because it is obvious that they're going to be asked things about whether or not they are remorseful for what they did it is not going to be helpful for their case that they say... I didn't do it. I still didn't do it. I still say I didn't do it. Um, and it's going to be of no surprise to anyone, I imagine particularly the judge, that the client says they didn't do it, given the client has said that throughout the case and continues to say it. So it's not exactly something that you would need to adduce evidence on. There are other ways that lawyers try to adduce evidence about their clients in those contexts, such as sending them to see a psychologist and then having the psych psychological report tendered. There is also a line of authority from the court that makes it clear that obviously that report is of far more limited weight than if they had given that sworn evidence about what they did. But nevertheless, at least it is some substitute if there are areas where otherwise there would be no evidence about their, their background or circumstances. Now, we've been talking about trials in the District Court or the Supreme Court trials on indictment, but as you know, the great majority of cases are heard in the local court. The local court process provides for a limited jurisdiction in the magistrate as to the sentence they can impose, mm. but is the process for legal aid in representing people in the local court the same as it would be in the District Court or the Supreme Court? It's very similar. It's not identical because we give more people legal aid in the local court without having as much administration involved. Um, you don't necessarily need a grant of legal aid in the local court for a sentence, which you do in the district court, um, and that allows us to see more people more easily without them having to provide us as much information. But the process itself, the court process, is, is very similar. There's limited capacity for us to provide um, experts' reports, like psychological reports, in every local court case because of the volume of matters. But we do have engagement at some courts, for example, with the Justice Health um, Forensic Mental Health Network at court who can provide um, reports from a clinical nurse consultant about, for example, a person's mental health 
issues, we will often hand up letters from people's GPs or doctors about things that they've been experiencing. So it's a similar type of process. It's just what is actually provided is sometimes a little bit different. Now, let's assume the client pleads guilty and comes up for sentence. If, again, they've pleaded guilty to an indictable matter, it will be heard in the District Court or the Supreme Court, but a summary matter in the local court. Uh, in those circumstances, do your people take a different approach to representing the uh, client, or is it the same as if they'd been convicted after trial? I think the main difference is that your client is saying they're guilty. They did the thing. It means that you can engage with them in a completely different way about they've accepted responsibility for something that they've done, they know they're going to be sentenced for it in court, they can more readily engage with you about what they see their future life plan in that context as being because their future life plan isn't just that they plan to go and appeal the thing that just happened. Mm. Um, it allows you to build with them a, a narrative of their life that they, you can share with the court about why they did what they did about how they feel about what they did and about what they plan to do now and how it is that you're going to, particularly if, for example, the court is concerned about the fact your client has not been able to hold down a job or has a raging drug um, addiction, uh, what you can do to address those concerns that is going to make it more likely that the person won't come back before the court having re-offended. And if the person has pleaded guilty, is it likely that the advocate will call them to give evidence at the sentence hearing? I think so, yes. It's far more likely, and it happens. Um, I know some advocates who would do it almost as a matter of course. I think that um, as much as we love the sound of our own voices, we know that there is a limit to how well we can tell the story of someone else's life. Also, what impact it might have on the judge too. Yeah, the judge is used to me perhaps, um, you know, saying a whole lot of things that will assist my client, but in, in the sense that the hearing the story... like to hear from the client. Too. Yeah, hearing the story from the defendant can be really powerful. Yeah. Um, hearing particularly clients who have um, really difficult stories to tell. I was thinking in preparation for this about a client I had who um, went through quite a protracted negotiation in the local court and ended up pleading guilty to something on the first day of the trial in the district court where the, where the prosecution amended and drop some of the more serious charges. And the psychological report we handed up in his case um, explained that he his, his parents had both been members of the Stolen Generations, that he had been removed from the custody of his parents when he was five months of age, that he had lived in eight or nine different foster homes until the age of 13. At the age of 13, he had left that arrangement and got caught up in a particularly bad crowd of other young people and had turned to a life of drugs and alcohol. And eventually, I was representing him ultimately on a char charge relating to armed robbery or like offences in which a firearm was discharged. And um, in that context, his background really showed a significant impact on what had led him to get to where he was. But there were also a number of markers of where he hadn't had the advantage of being able to have some of the some of the things in life that some other people have that put them on the right path and an opportunity perhaps to see where if he could be helped to be put on the right path, um, maybe things would turn out very differently for him. And he was only 22 at the time of this sent that sentence happening. So it was at a stage in his life where um, 
it was an, uh, it was important to to explain to the court and to show the judge that given the right opportunities, maybe there was still an opportunity for full rehabilitation for him. Now, let's assume that sentence is passed, but your client's not happy and believes the sentence is excessive. Does legal aid appear on appeals? <coughs> legal aid does, yes. If it's an appeal from the local court to the district court, we appear in quite a lot of matters. Um, but the difference is that we have what's called a merit test, which means that we actually <coughs> we actually assess whether or not it is likely um, that, the pros that, that the appeal will succeed in deciding whether or not we spend money on it. So if there is no benefit that the client could obtain from an appeal, we wouldn't spend no. the money on, on those appeals. And what about appeals from decisions in the District Court and the Supreme Court? Does yeah, so appear on those as well? So they, those appeals go to the Court of Criminal Appeal and we do appear and, again, there is a merit test. And that process too is a little bit more involved in the sense that we often will seek advice from counsel and sometimes that advice is from a counsel that wasn't involved in running the original trial and they will give an independent um, independent assessment as to whether or not um, the appeal is likely to have reasonable prospects of success or not. Now we've been talking of course all the time about legal aid, which yes. you're part of, but in New South Wales is another institution called the Public Defender. Yes. Uh, what's the relationship between Legal Aid and the Public Defender's Office? So they're separate, they're separate entities, but the Legal Aid Commission Act requires that we um, support and maintain um, a public defender in New South Wales by ensuring that they're appropriately briefed in appropriate matters. And that means that we um, will, as a matter of course, if we try to brief a barrister, we will ordinarily first offer that brief to the Public Defender's Office. Now, of course, because we have way more matters than they could possibly take on because they, they don't have that many public defenders, um, there are some rules that the public defenders and legal aid have put in place, uh, but as a general rule, we offer it to, those, to the public defenders first. And you'd offer, I assume, the more serious crimes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the public defenders are held out to be um, some of the best barristers in criminal law to represent the public, the public person. Well, they're the very experienced and very able. Absolutely. And so it stands to reason that we would try to put them in the most serious cases and um, the most important appeals. Is it the case that all of their work, all the public defender work, comes from legal aid? Um, as I understand it, m m all, all of the public defender's work comes from either legal aid or the Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, and where it comes from the private profession, it is on grants of legal aid. So, in other words, where legal aid has paid a private lawyer so to appear, to a, solicitor. a private solicitor to a, yeah to and instruct, they're, the they're still required to brief a public defender first right. if the public defender is available. Yeah. How many times? Well, put it put it another way. Do you brief the private solicitors very often? So, private solicitors do about one third of legal aid's duty work statewide, but about two thirds of our casework, so our grants work. So the answer is yes. In terms of the work, the legally aided work done by private solicitors, um, they actually have more um, of those kind of serious crime files or those casework, so um, summary criminal hearings in local court or district court matters 
they have more of those than we keep in house. So, what's the size of the budget annual budget for legal aid? I mean, it's the total budget for legal aid is about just over $400 million. Quite broadly, uh, legal aid is funded to provide programs throughout criminal law as well as family and civil law, but that also includes things like the running of the prisoner's legal service and the children's legal service. It includes the running of things like the Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service statewide. It also includes money given to manage the Community Legal Centres program throughout New South Wales. Uh, as well as a number of other initiatives. Legal Aid's been heavily involved in the last year in disaster recovery response, given the floods and, in previous years, the fires, in terms of providing advice and assistance to people who have lost their homes and lost everything and um, are engaged in legal disputes with insurance companies and, and other things. Now, there's just one other issue I want to ask you about. We now, in New South Wales, are moving towards helping Aboriginal people who are in trouble with the law through both methods of sentencing and also providing particular lists. I think circle sentencing has been with us for some years now. Yes. And the Wallamar list, as it's called, is a recent creation. Can you tell us, does Legal Aid operate in both of those areas? Yeah, so um, there has recently been announced an expansion to circle sentencing from 12 to 20 court locations throughout New South Wales. Those additional eight locations have not yet commenced. Can you tell us what circle sentencing is? Yeah, so circle sentencing is um, a process by which um, Aboriginal cultural elders are involved in the sentencing process on the ground in their community and where matters that are referred to a circle, um, people physically go and have a discussion that the offender or the defendant is a part of, that the magistrate is a part of, and that elders are a part of. And they actually sit in a circle. Sometimes the complainant and other, like the victims of the crime, um, will sometimes attend as well. And the idea is that they have a discussion that is underpinned by cultural understandings um, of the wrongdoing of what the defendant did and the impact that what the defendant did had on that particular community. And particularly in communities where the elders are well respected, that process has been shown to be of great benefit, um, both in terms of um, recognising the wrongs done and giving sometimes the victims an opportunity to, to talk about the impact that it had in a forum that the defendant will hear, um, but also potentially in terms of deterring future behaviour or in preventing further reoffending. I'd be interested to see what happens with the additional courts. As I say, that those additional ones are not yet set up. And how do you fit your work in those circle courts together with uh, the Aboriginal Legal Service? How does that work out? Yeah, so um, we, we work in partnership with the Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, we represent Aboriginal defendants, but the Aboriginal Legal Service is a culturally controlled organisation to represent Aboriginal people. Um, defendants can choose whether they are represented by the Aboriginal Legal Service or whether they are represented by legal aid. Um, there are some locations where the Aboriginal Legal Service does not have a presence and in those places we will represent Aboriginal defendants. There are some places where legal aid um, doesn't have a presence or at least we pay the private lawyers locally to do um, the duty assistance at court and as a result a lot of Aboriginal defendants in those places go to the Aboriginal Legal Service. But we work in partnership with them.
And what about the Wollamar list? What's that all about? So the Wollamar list is a list that has been set up as part of the District Court of New South Wales. Uh, Wollamar is a Darug word that means coming back or returning, which is meant to be a return to community and culture and a healthy crime-free life. And the idea of the Wollamar list is in effect that there is a culturally appropriate sentencing list in which um, elders are engaged in a process of um, thinking about the rehabilitation of particular Aboriginal defendants who are referred to that list. And do legal aid people appear in that list? Yes, we've set up a Wollamar team, in fact, to assist with that. Aboriginal Legal Service also have a presence in that list. So you cooperate with them in who you appear for? We do. At the moment, the Wollamar list is running effectively as a pilot with only 50 participants at a time. And so the numbers are relatively limited and it's only run in Sydney District Court at the moment. Robert, thanks for coming and joining with us this afternoon. What you do, of course, to contribute to the system in New South Wales is of fundamental importance to our community and everyone is grateful for the work that Legal Aid do. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Robert Hoyle, the Director of Crime for New South Wales Legal Aid. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.